More questions than answers with Julie Panessi, brought to you by the Democracy Fund. Hi, everybody. I'm absolutely thrilled today uh, to have Dr. David Haskell from Laurier with us. And I was just saying to David that I, I'm surprised our paths haven't crossed already because we've kind of been cir circling, I think, in the same orbit, uh, talking about thinking about the same issues. And I think we talk to a lot of the same people uh, who talk to each other, but um, I'm so glad we're finally getting to sit down today. So David, thank you so much. Uh, for being with us. Um, and I first came across you because a very good friend sent me a talk that you gave and it was published on November 29th. I don't know if you gave it on the 29th, um, but it was called, or at least this is what was published on BitChute, I think, Vaccine Mandates Are the Rehearsal and the future will be worse. My goodness, you can't have a much more compelling, a compelling and scary, you know, and of course our pro-narrative people these days are going to say, oh, well, that's fear-mongering and it's based in scientific error and all of these things. Uh, but I hope that today we can kind of get to the bottom of why you think it's not fear-mongering, why it's, you know, rational to be very aware and very concerned about what's going on these days, not just scientifically and medically, but what's going on politically and sociologically and how we got here and how we might possibly, if it's possible, work our way out of it. So um, let's just start by, can you just tell us a little bit about who you are? I know you're from Laurier. I know you have a background in media, um, yeah. but I think your background is much more complex and nuanced than that. So maybe you can tell everybody a little bit about, you know, what led up to where you sure. are. Professor. Sure, yeah. Uh, so I do have a background in media. I was a TV reporter and uh, also a print journalist. And then I moved from journalism into academia. I started teaching at uh, the community college level, and then I pursued a PhD. Uh, my PhD is in communication studies, but mm -hmm. communication studies is, uh, is a discipline where we draw on different tools from other disciplines. So really I was using the tools of sociology in order to look at um, media and religion, the relationship between media and religion. And even today, really, most of my research happens in the field of sociology of religion. Uh, in particular, I look at religion and culture. So I still always have a foot in media. I'm still interested in media bias in particular. Mm -hmm. uh, back, it'd be almost 10 years ago, that was really my first heavily researched area. I, I published a book on it. And um, even today, the valuable lessons I learned are, are, are coming to be very helpful because as you would know, Julie, there's some significant media bias going on. And we can <laughs> talk about that as well. Yes. Uh, just, you know, since we're already there. So just for fun, because I knew that we would be talking today. Uh, I went and I looked up, um, we have databases at Laurier, newspaper databases. So it gives you all of the newspapers that are available here in Canada. So I thought, well, what I'll do is I will look up what, what's been going on in terms of certain studies related to the COVID-19 vaccine. So this morning I, I went looking for media bias. So using these databases, I did a search of all the major news outlets. I looked at the Globe and Mail, Toronto Star, National Post, CBC, CTV, Global News. And I even looked at their affiliates as well. And I wanted to see if any of our mainstream media had sent, said anything, if they even had a single article on the half dozen academic reports 
and studies that have been published since September. Now, these studies, you're aware of them, I'm sure your audiences, have shown that the vaccinated and the unvaccinated catch and spread the COVID virus in near equal measure or an equal measure, depending on the study. Sometimes it's so not vaccinated more so, some of the studies. Yeah, exactly. And, and so, so we know that this is the case. We've got these academic reports, but out of all mainstream media in Canada, since the fall, only one media outlet had a single report about these half dozen studies. And I say the half dozen, there are more, but half dozen that have appeared in reputable journals. Uh, and, and several of them are peer reviewed. And I'll tell you who was the one that, that did publish. It was the Sun Media Chain. Uh, and they've been fairly, fairly <laughs> good. You know, they've been trying their best to, to be neutral, I believe. But even there, it was a single article of 134 words. And, and it was uh, about that bombshell study that had just come out at the end of October in The Lancet. So The Lancet Medical Journal uh, looked at transmission uh, the viral load and transmission among the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. And it was in the UK. And they found that they catch and spread it about equally. So this is major, right? It's a peer-reviewed study in a prestigious journal. You would think that totally every- ignored. Uh, totally ignored. Yeah. And so this was my test this morning to see what was going on. And then I, I just on a whim, I looked again and I said, okay, what else has been a bombshell report? So the British, uh, the British Medical Journal, again, one of the most prestigious medical journals in the world, did it, uh, an investigative report. And I think that this one, again, was the beginning of November, right? So fairly, fairly recently. And it was a report by a guy, Paul Thacker. So anyway, it should have caught the attention of every news outlet in Canada because it revealed that Pfizer has been lying about the safety of its vaccine. So the, you might know this, the British Medical Journal was presented with dozens of internal company documents. They had photos, uh, emails, audio recording that proved that Pfizer has been lying and suppressing data from their safety trials. In fact, the, the quote in the article that was, again, in the British Medical Journal was something like, uh, Pfizer has falsified data. They've unblinded patients. Uh, unblinded meaning they, they've let them know you're actually getting the placebo or you're getting the real thing. They employed inadequate trained vaccinators and they didn't follow up or were slow to follow up on adverse ev events. So these vaccine injuries. So not a single, not a single media outlet in Canada reported on this. And, and that's, this led vaccine, the public, that's led the public to believe that the vaccines are perfectly effective. You're completely immune from this very real viral threat and the vaccines are perfectly safe. That's the common view, right? And it's not tracking what we're seeing. I mean, you mentioned uh, the Lancet, which I think as I checked recently, the second, only second maybe to the Johns Hopkins Journal in the world and the right. British Medical Journal are tops. And when we look at the data coming out of the highly vaccinated countries, even when that data maybe hasn't made its way into the peer reviewed literature yet, it's telling the same story, but our media is not, as I think you quite rightly point out, right? Right, and, and this, is, this is to the point of negligence. This is to the point of, of harming particularly young people. So we know that the people who have worked closely with Pfizer, they chose to be whistleblowers. The British Medical Journal gathered the evidence and said, we've got to tell the world 
and not a single newspaper in Canada reported on it. We've seen this time and time again, you know, way back, how many months ago has it been now? Dr. Byron Bridal, University of Guelph, um, came out with uh, you know, research su suggesting why these vaccines are likely to be harmful, especially in compounding doses. And Derek Sloan held a press conference and hardly any press showed up. It didn't get any traction in the news. And as you so rightly point out, I mean, there are so many things that are worrisome scientifically and medically about our pandemic response, generally speaking. And even if you know, someone sort of on the pro-narrative side wants to say, well, that's not a problem for this reason, or I can explain, explain this away or explain that away. Why are we not seeing it part, come, in, come to the light? Why are we not seeing it, uh, you know, in our, our mainstream media articles so that people know that there are questions, there are concerns, there's doubt, there are problems with the trials. Um, and so that that level of, so that we're being honest, right, about that level of uncertainty and that people have an ability to realize what kind of risk COVID poses to them versus what kind of risk the pandemic measures like the lockdowns on mental health and, uh, and the vaccines, what kind of risks those pose to them so that we can make an informed choice. I've said before, and I stand by this, I don't think any person who's received the COVID vaccines in Canada so far has been able to do so with informed consent because the conditions for informed consent require a kind of information transparency that we're just being blocked from, right? Um, but, so this question, David, just uh, is at the forefront of my mind these days. You know, you mentioned that you have this background in sociology of religion. I find that so interesting. Um, and I don't really know what that is because sociology and religion are usually um, in different departments at a university, right? Yeah. They're usually separated uh, physically. But I, what, what it conjures in my mind are questions about, you know, why do people believe what they do? How do we, uh, you know, how do our belief systems change? What, uh, what, what role does ritual have in our lives? How, wh why do we find certain stories compelling? I, I don't know if I'm mischaracterizing that, but those are some of the questions that would come to my mind. And so I can't help but think these days, this story that the government is telling, this narrative, right? And I don't mean to use the word story in a, in, a, uh, in a derogatory way. I don't mean to imply that it's there by false, but let's just say there's this narrative according to which COVID is this highly virulent pathogen, there is no treatment and vaccines are perfectly safe and effective and they're gonna get us out of this. In some sense, that is the greatest story ever told because when have we ever seen the vast majority of the billions of people on this planet buy into it. It is a drama with a story arc and character development like we have never seen, right? To get people to buy into it. And I've been reading a lot lately about, you know, Dr. Malone, um, he's been talking about mass formation psychosis in order That's to right. try to explain, so interesting, right? Try to explain why is it that so many people are willing to buy this story, to accept this story? Why do we cling to it so tightly? Do you have an explanation for that? I mean, I suppose someone would say, oh, well, we buy it because it's clearly true, right? <laughs> but I don't think that, I mean, what we know from philosophy anyway, from epistemology is that belief is not great at tracking truth, right? We, we believe all kinds of things that are not necessarily true. And we do it for other reasons, because we're motivated by our emotions, or it's advantageous for us to believe this thing at this particular time or whatever. But why is this story so compelling? Why are people standing by it so? Well, right I'll death? tell you, I've given this a lot of thought. And um, 
I think that one of the things that I've come to realize is that we give most people too much credit in terms of them actually thinking through what is happening in their own life, the narratives that they're being sold. And I think that there's really good sociological evidence and it shows that if you have a passionate 10% or 20%, depending on the study, we'll talk about the passionate 10% or passionate 20%, you can control the culture because what they will do is they'll capture the narrative, they'll make sure that they suppress other narratives and 80% of the population will go along with it. And so we see, sadly, that, that most people don't really engage with the facts of their life. They don't, they, beyond their family, beyond the immediate needs of the family, they don't look at the larger culture and they don't ask why. Uh, part of it is, it is a stigma to stand apart from the crowd. I mean, it's, it's frightening. And, and at our heart, through, through evolutionary process, we're really pack animals, right? We're tribal. And to stand apart from the crowd is frightening. And so it's so much more psychologically pleasing to be part of the group. And, and, and in fact, moving further, there's really good evidence from psychology that, that it's actually pleasing to persecute those who are outside the group. So you've got this double whammy. Yeah, I did not see this coming. I have to say tribalism, my goodness. I mean, this has been, I, I, you know, having been in academia for a long time, we talk about the um, sort of the mass psychoses or the mob mentality as being something that's part of, it's, we, we speak about it in disparaging ways, right? I mean, we, right. we say, well, people who with low intelligence or the uneducated, they're more susceptible to mob mentality in a way that can be really harmful. And we sort of think, I think that anthropologists and sociologists and historians would tell us that we've gradually moved away from this kind of tribalism, which is animalistic. Right? And in philosophy, anyway, there's this, there's definitely this trend of focusing on reason to the exclusion of or the suppression of our baser animal instincts, right? And I'm sure this is, you know, you find this too at, at university that there has been now, I think there's been an erosion of this or a morphing of this, but, but this idea that what it is to be educated is to be able to distance yourself from the crowd, from the mob, mob from the tribe, and be reflective about what the tribe is doing. It turns out, to my great surprise, astonishment, and horror, that academia is just another form of tribalism. The media is another form of tribalism. Society these days, we're no less tribalistic. We might mm -hmm. just have found ways of making our tribalism more insidious under the guise of, well, we're sophisticated, we read more, we're more educated, we're, you know. Um, but that, now maybe this didn't sneak up on you as much, having more of a background, you know, in sociology, well, why people I, do. I'd say that it, it didn't sneak up on me because, um, I've been seeing the trajectory for about 10 years now. And, and because it's something that uh, I speak up about, uh, this isn't my first time I've been in trouble with my administration either. <laughs> um, back in 2017, there was a, a grad student, Lindsay Shepard, who was showing a, a video in class that had aired on public TV. And it was simply Jordan Peterson talking about 
his desire to protect his autonomy. Now, does that sound familiar? Someone wanting to protect their autonomy, to be able to choose to act and think differently. Um, and it was about the use of pronouns. So anyway, this uh, grad student, Lindsay, she showed this video and she was attacked by her professor, her thesis advisor. And she was told she'd committed a hate crime. She was told that she harmed the people in the class by showing this video that had, that had aired on public TV. And, and so in that, we begin to, and, and even before this, the trajectory has been there that there is one side of an issue that will be welcome at university or be welcome in society. And we've moved away from the enlightenment idea, the, the John Stuart Mill idea, that someone who doesn't know both sides of the argument doesn't even know the argument. You know, this was actually what was the, the gold standard at universities at one time. Um, it's not anymore. The idea now in our university system, in our media, is that we will choose what the correct narrative is. And we will punish those who try to present other facts. And, and it's not, I'm not saying other opinions even, even, even though I think those should be welcome, other facts. Like we're talking, we, we began our conversation talking about these studies, this peer-reviewed study in The Lancet that will not be reported on. That's unheard of. I'm so glad you brought up John Stuart Mill because um, this collectivist strand that we see these days, right? This, I, these two mantras, the um, do your part and we're all in this together, these very collectivist, uh, act for the sake of the good, sacrifice yourself for the sake of the group, the sort of philosophical lineage of that, which I'm sure you know, but just to kind of spell it out a bit for, for people watching, um, goes back, I think, to the utilitarians and consequentialists. And, and the fathers of those are John Stuart Mill and, and, and his sort of mentor, Jer Jeremy Bentham. And um, But interestingly, now, I mean, they were utilitarians. So they said that the, our obligation as moral agents is to try to produce as much aggregate good as possible but they're also great defenders of free speech. And Jeremy Bentham was a great defender of, um, you know, the rights uh, not to be owned as a slave, women's rights, rights to free expression. And this collectivist um, ethos, to put it very mildly, has forgotten that these fathers of contemporary collectivism, I think, um, did not say you should sacrifice all for the sake of the group, right? There are these important um, stopping points, and they're the stopping points that we're missing these days. And, and I think you're exactly right that we're not even allowing facts into the public arena so that public discourse is possible, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I was thinking about this recently, and and so I I want I, I, I'm very much a centrist. At least I used to be until they moved the goalpost, and now and now I'm on the right. I, I used to be a centrist, and one thing that I was thinking about was what would be what would be the proper response of those people who are firmly in the go and get vaccinated camp, and. And I want to honor them and say, if that's your decision, that's your decision. And I think that what they need to know is that those people who they are opposing, the people who are the vaccine hesitant, the people who are against the vaccine mandate, those people don't need a perfect argument to be able to hold their opinion. They just need a rational argument. Mm -hmm. So 
So let me just think this through because, because it's, it's as though if they don't have every argument on their side, if they don't have every study on their side, if the people opposing the vaccine mandate don't have every study on their side, well, then their, their opinion isn't valid. And that's simply yeah, not default, true. If I understand you correctly, the, the default now is um, vaccine enthusiasm or something. And if you're not on board with that, then all the burden of proof is on you, right? Yes, and, and this just isn't the way that theory works. It's not the way that um, growing Democracy. toward, uh, I'm sorry? <laughs> Democracy. <laughs> Democracy, or um, uh, let's let's uh, bring in some philosophy. The, the Hegelian method of bringing forth knowledge is you need thesis, antithesis to <laughs> synthesis, but you can't get that if you're not allowed to say, well, here's a rational argument. It might not be a perfect argument, but it's a rational argument because I can, I can show you my facts, I can show you I have some studies on my side. Therefore, my position is justified. Your position can be justified too. And where we have to agree is to tolerate each other. But that simply isn't happening. And we are moving further and further from this idea of toleration. Toleration now is being confused with complete acceptance. And you can't live in a society like that or it can't be a free society like that. And this is a really dangerous path that we're moving down where I have to accept the narrative that you're proposing despite the fact that I have rational arguments, strong moral arguments as well on my side. Mm -hmm. There's almost this um, sense these days in, according to which we have no room for imperfection, uncertainty, nuance, non-binary ways of thinking, right? And that is so such a departure from much of the moral literature over the last two or three decades and, and much of what's filtered into the bioethics literature according to which testimony is important and listening to every story is important and understanding. I mean, a lot of literature in medical ethics about assessing capacity and understanding informed consent is very individual specific. So there's a lot of discussion about how different people uh, embrace risk differently and how we should tolerate that, right? So if you're very, very risk averse, you might choose a certain course of pharmaceutical intervention. If you're not very risk averse, you might choose a different one. But the point is that the establishment you know, the, the academic bioethics establishment, and then I think more broadly in ethical theory as well, has been very, not just tolerant, but very much embracing and recognizing that truth often consists in these, these small details that we are wanting to wash away now, right? Mm -hmm. What's your best explanation for why we've hit that level of intolerance? You know, in terms of being intolerant of, of I mean, we just want black and white, scientific thinking goodness how many times over the last year and a half have we heard well, see, see that's a misnomer though isn't it <laughs> because scientific thinking involves a competition of ideas yes they don't that's want scientific true. thinking they they and it's again uh i see it rooted in this whole movement uh and i'm sorry if if i sound like other people who have spoken before me but it's this notion of postmodernism that has taken hold that says that there is no truth um, it, it's this idea of uh, critical theory that is creating everything to be um, the oppressor and the oppressed. And so it reduces mm -hmm. what can be spoken 
Um, and it, it eliminates this notion that in, in good conscience and, and in, a, in a spirit of fairness, you can have a debate with someone. Now, if you try to debate with someone and bring your facts and argument, it's seen as oppressive. And, and when, when you get labels thrown at you, whether you know it's, well, whatever the ism is of the day, uh, it just shuts down discourse. And so it, it perpetuates this thought or this, this uh, societal movement where things can't be discussed. But if there is no truth anymore, why are we working so hard to pin down the absolute perfection of something like science? I mean, I can't tell you how many Twitter posts I've read where it was, you know, um, something trying to cite some sort of, you know, scientific fact about how the vaccines are effective or something like that. And then hashtag science or hashtag uh, what, what are they? You know, all of these hashtags that basically try to make the point that I don't even need to make an argument anymore because it's so self-evident that science is perfect and it's proving what I'm saying, right? So if we're really in this kind of postmodern world where there is no truth and it's sort of an absolute kind of uh, epistemological relativism, would you not expect the opposite to be the case? Would you not expect more people to say, well, I don't know what the truth is. Your, your version is probably just as good as mine, so you do what you want. And yet we're seeing exactly the opposite of that. We're seeing this buckling down, doubling down, holding on to what is it, the one um, sort of uh, infallible, immovable fulcrum of knowledge in society, which we take to be science. It's, a, mm -hmm. it's, it's an, I would not have guessed that that's what we would have done in the sort of aftermath of postmodernism, if that's what we're in. I guess we're still in postmodernism, but you know, the kind of the, the fallout from the big um, apex of postmodern critical theory. So I think that one of the key ideas of postmodernism and critical theory is inconsistency. And we have to realize that. <laughs> Can't have that. Um, <laughs> right? So enlightenment thinking is very much um, not, not linear, but, but logical. Uh, under critical theory, logic is now seen as colonialism. Uh, they sometimes call it whiteness. They call it oppressive. They call it patriarchal. Right. So they, they've actually vilified the pursuit of objective knowledge. It's now, it's now uh, an evil. Right. And yet they will insist, they will insist, and yet here is the truth. That's completely inconsistent. They want to deny that there would be some kind of epistemological reality on one right. hand. And then on the other hand, they say, uh, no, we have the truth. And then they'll refer to lived experience, which is what we used to call anecdotal evidence. And we used to reject it. So it's, it's fascinating to me that we're at a spot where the old rules no longer apply because the old rules were, uh, and they were kind of enlightenment rules. They probably generated in the Judeo-Christian tradition. The idea was that you would have a debate and present your ideas, not in hostility, but in a, a spirit of adventure and, and higher learning. And that's gone. And so now what I'm seeing from university officials and the majority of university professors 
is this claim that empirical evidence should be vilified. My truth, whatever it is, should be held up as absolute. And this is what authoritarians do, right? They, they make it so that the opponent, whatever their ideological opponent is, whoever that is, is, is uh, stigmatized, not allowed to speak, um, and then they make sure that their view becomes the truth. And, and you asked about religious impulse. People often say that in the West, we're becoming less religious. No, we're not. We're just exchanging one religion for another. Now, we had a really good run for 2,000 years with this religion that uh, in the West that actually allowed for success and freedom and liberty when it was practiced as the founder intended. And, and within that system were the paradoxes of love your enemies. Like that's, that's not, uh, that, that idea never existed and suddenly love your enemies. Okay, well this makes space then for rational dialogue between opponents. So within the kernels of this founding, this founder, um, of course I'm talking about Jesus right now, there were really the seeds of modern democracy, uh, freedom, liberty, et cetera, et cetera. So you replace that, those core ideas, love your enemy. Um, essentially, I mean, that, that one's key for sure, uh, that all people should be um, free to make their own decisions, the, the free will that people should have, all these good things. You replace that with a new religion that thinks you should hate your enemies, that you, you, you don't try and engage them in arguments. Instead, you categorize them as Vaccine, what, what's the, what do they call uh, people? Oh, vaccine, um, not vaccine deniers, yeah, anti-vax, anti-vax. Yeah, so it's like right? a way of cutting your opponent out at the knees. And then once they're cut out at the knees, they're not, they're not an opponent anymore. This is so interesting to me. So let's, we've been talking about narrative and story and, and what compels people to believe and then act on, on certain beliefs. So if I understand what you're saying, we'll try to put this together with this, the, the hypnotic sort of, discussion we were having earlier, that if what you're saying is true, then Western civilization has been following basically a Judeo-Christian narrative for 2000 years, Christian, Judeo-Christian, if we speak about as broadly as possible, right? And that narrative was inclusive and tolerant and when, and again, I mean, there, there are some nasty things within Christianity, yeah, yeah. Um, but when it was practiced as the founder, intended, it, it did lead to uh, societal flourishing. There's no doubt. And then we've, as we've lost interest in that particular story, I take it was that's gone down, our interest in science as the infallible, um, perfect order creating entity for the world has risen. But out of that, but, but not real science, Julie. But not, not real, real science. science. Yeah, yeah. That's I. I no, right. Yeah. Uh, because because again, let's go back to that. Eighty percent really are not looking at the facts. Yeah, yeah. So what will we call this then? I, I take your point very well. It's almost. I mean, it is a pseudoscience. It's the thing that defenders of so-called science these days want to say that 
anti-vaxxers and vaccine hesitant people are doing, but really science itself has become a kind of pseudoscience, right? It's a, well, let's claim to be looking at the facts and let's claim that the facts are so obvious that we're not even gonna lower ourselves to, to, <laughs> to, to talk about them anymore, right? But in reality, it's become like all the facts are happening down here and this pseudoscience thing is flying in the Concord right above here, completely disregarding what's actually going on in, as you say, top journals like The Lancet and, and epidemiological yeah. evidence we're seeing from all over the world, right? But something mm -hmm. about this um, odd way of seeing science, this sort of postmodern science, I guess, right? That has given rise to this mass psychosis, I take it, that is very fear and terror oriented, that has captured us into this narrative of the COVID story and the COVID response, right? Mm -hmm. um, let's, so let's operate on the assumption that what I have said there over the last two minutes is roughly right, even though I'm very open to the fact that I, you know, I'm willing to rethink and all of that. But let's say it's kind of roughly right. If it is, what's the way out of that? Do we just need a more compelling story to tell, right? If we're, if we're done, if we've moved out of the sort of the Judeo-Christian narrative of 2000 years, if, we, if we're trapped in this postmodern pseudoscience that's not getting us anywhere, um, what do we do? Do we need a more compelling story to tell? Do we need a better storyteller? Are there historical I mean, this this strikes me as being different in kind from anything we've seen in history before. Um, well, you mentioned history, and and I would think that that would be the most depressing place to look, because <laughs> whenever whenever a society gets to this place from a historical perspective, you don't get out of it. And uh, I can't think of of a society where we're just on the tip, right? We're not we're not full blown totalitarian, we're not full-blown authoritarian. But we definitely are where other countries were um, just prior to going full-blown authoritarian. And the, the history books aren't forgiving. And keep in mind that this is not about creating a factual narrative, right? Because the, the other side doesn't care about facts. Yeah. And so, so when you lose the ability to dialogue and to have competing ideas, you are reduced to competing in other ways. And that's ugly. What are those other ways so, historically? <laughs> well, historically, revolution, right? Um, but ultimately, and what will happen is the people who are on side right now, uh, who think that it's going to stop at the vaccine mandate, um, the, the people who get a taste for this, they, they now have a precedent. They've now shown that it is okay to normalize the, the abuse of certain people in society because they didn't believe like the government said. Yes. I mean, that's extreme. And there's a kind of sainthood that comes along with that, don't you think? Uh, you mean on the part of the people who are, are struggling? Yeah. Yeah, well, on the part of, well, I mean, on the part of the people who are buying into the narrative, it's very interesting. You know, I was talking with someone a while ago about sort of the 10 stages of genocide and number two, I think, is symbolization. We were talking about, you know, whether or not it's 
appropriate or blasphemous in some way to make comparisons to, you know, wearing the Star of David in 1940s Germany and, and, and being tattooed with a number and things like that. And of course, we know we, we might have to have a discussion another day about, about all of that, because that's kind of a, a rabbit hole unto itself, you know. But um, my view is that we slip very quickly into things that no rational person would want. As soon as we symbolize someone, as soon as we reduce all of the complexities about a human being, you know, to a number, to a color, to a certain label that's visibly worn on them, on themselves, you know? Okay, but, that's an incredible observation. Well, because, I was going to say, I think I'm unique in that view. <laughs> well, well, no, it's, I mean, what you're saying is we have been taught this reductionist way of thinking. You are your skin color. Yeah. You are your gender. You are your gender identity. You are this with some immutable characteristic when indeed you aren't. You are the collection of your thoughts and values, beliefs and ideas. That's who every individual is, but we've been reduced to that. So now it, it becomes second nature to say, ah, that's an anti-vaxxer. And that's all we need to need know to about know. you. I don't need to that's know. That's all we need to know. I don't need to know what you and, know about cooking or taking care of a car or your views about the economy because none of it matters to me because I know enough I need that I need to know about you, right? And it's terrible we've gotten to that point. Um, and and it, let me just, and we've been dancing around this, so I'll try to put a point on it, because I don't want to sound like I'm a crazy man saying, oh, the revolution is coming, because I hope it doesn't. I hope it doesn't. Yeah. Here's what I do think, though. It is clear to me that the vaccine mandate is not a public health issue. Yes. yes. It can't be, because we have testing, that antigen testing that people could do, right? Yeah. We don't have to force anybody to do anything. We have we have uh, service industries. We have uh, police services and and some hospitals even yeah. who are saying you can do testing. So we know that there's an option. So and they're not we, they've not cared about natural immunity for forever. They don't care about the testing. The vaccines aren't working, and nobody cares. I think all of those things show us that this is not a medical issue. This is not a medical issue. It's not a public health issue. So as soon as you realize that. You have to say, well, what is it? And it is a freedom issue. And where this is leading is very clear. The goal is to normalize the idea that those people who want freedom are dangerous. Those people who want freedom, it is right to harm them. And we've seen this trend. This trend uh, is prevalent in our government and in society. Often, and again, because you know, my area is sociology of religion and, and I look at Christianity and culture mostly, but I look and I say, okay, back in uh, 2018, Justin Trudeau said that Christian organizations because of their pro-life belief mm -hmm. should not have access to government funding for summer jobs. Yeah. And then those groups were denied funding. 
and We're then, seeing people denied services now. Well, during uh, the election, he said this totally crazy thing in a completely irate way, which is don't think you're getting on a plane next to, uh, you know, don't think you're going to be unvaccinated getting on a plane next to vaccinated people. At the time, I thought, well, that's going to lose him the election because he says it with, you know, pulsing veins and red face. Probably won him the election. They probably did. Uh, the thing to remember And he is, probably knew that and had very- Oh, well, he's got focus group. And, and, you know, there are people in government, both provincially and federally, who know that the vaccine mandates are a crock. They know it, mm -hmm. but they're looking at their, their surveys and their polls, and they're saying, the narrative has been so strong, the lies have been so potent. We can't go back on this now. People are afraid and they're in our hands. People love to persecute others. Let's keep doing it because it allows us to stay in power. So they know that the vaxxed and the unvaxxed are spreading and catching COVID in equal numbers. They can read the science. They've How got scientific advice. Yeah. Yeah. So, so again, back to this notion that it is not a public health issue. It's clear it's not. So when you recognize that it's not a public health issue, you really begin to see the danger involved. And it really should activate you to action, whatever that looks like. Yeah, it's really interesting you say that, um you know, the people have not only been given permission to persecute others, but they've been congratulated and rewarded for persecuting others, almost like it's a cancer to be, the questioner, the dissenter, the unvaccinated, these are all cancers on society to be cut out as quickly and efficiently and unnoticeably maybe as possible. You know, I um, I wrote a paper, I don't know, five plus years ago now on persecution. And it was just so interesting to me. Um, there weren't other papers on the topic at the time, not in philosophical literature anyway, I didn't have much to go on, but I started reading historical accounts of persecution and you know what was going on in South Africa and apartheid and Rwanda and, and of course, uh, you know, the, the Jews in the 40s and 30s. And, um, what was so interesting to me about it is, I mean, persecution comes from, from words that mean not just to pursue, but to target and to hunt, you know? And I think what we're seeing now is that when people are persecuted, it's never for, it's never a response to a full sense of who they are, what we were saying earlier, right? It's always in virtue of their membership in some particular community, right? So you're persecuted because you're black, you're persecuted because you're female, you're persecuted because of your religion, um, as though that's the only thing that matters about you. We figure out that you have that thing that makes you belong to this group, we hate this group, therefore we terminate you, right? And I think what I was saying earlier about how, as soon as we can label someone as being part of that, group that is to be persecuted and we can separate them from ourselves um, not only is it quite easy to hate and extinguish the other but to make ourselves feel morally superior and like saints and like we're morally perfect for belonging to the privileged group so um 
I mean, I was thinking about and talking about and writing about how awful vaccine passports would be for a while because nobody wants to be to be under surveillance like that. Nobody wants to be tracked like that. Well, that's not true. I was wrong about that. I think people are quite happy for the most part to have this identifier on their phone, this QR code that means they are part of the chosen group. They are part of the pure group. And yeah. so this, this- It's a longing for ritual. It's a, a longing for ritual. for ritual. It's a longing for group identity. You're right. If that wasn't so horrifying, that would be such a beautiful phrase, a longing for ritual. And how long, how many, how many tens of thousands of years has human nature been defined by this longing, right? To belong in some way, to, um, to be part of this thread that unites all of us. And now this thread, right, is being not just a believer in the current narrative, but a uh, you know, a defender of the narrative and you're willing to sacrifice for the narrative, you know, and um, where we're maybe just in the next five minutes, I think we need to talk again, if you're gracious enough to sit down and chat again, but maybe in the next five minutes, you could just give us a sense of, um, are we stuck with this forever? Is there a way out of this? Well, I want to go back. I said, you know, we need to rise to action. And I want to qualify my words because I'm sure they'll be taken out of context and somebody will say that I'm trying to militarize the the uh, unvaccinated, which is not the case at all. I think what they have is, said that about you already. And yeah, me they too. Have. So. <laughs> yeah. What, what I am saying is we need to realize that the people who are opposing us are organized and they are passionate and they are holding protests and they are writing their officials, whether it's a university official, whether it is a government official, and we need to do the same. We need to be as passionate in our cause as they are, are in theirs. And, and the benefit to us is that we, we actually, I think we have better arguments. Like our arguments, our argument is one of tolerance. Even if you say, okay, we don't have the best argument um, because there's a, a tension between this study and that study. Fair enough. But we're the group that's saying, we want to give you your right to speak and think. Let us have ours. So in that way, we are actually in a better position. Mm -hmm. and, and so how do we get out of this? Um, well, I'll tell you how we don't get out of it, by doing nothing. Yeah. Uh, so we have, to, we have to, at every turn, be active, we have to be writing letters, we have to be doing what our opponents are doing already. We have to, to get out with signs, we have to get out uh, and- The banging of pots and together. pans, was that in Norway or Denmark a year ago or something, banging pots and pans yeah. in the streets and- Yeah, and yeah. that point uh, of- we, can't, visual. we can't do nothing, was it, was it Churchill? I might have this wrong, but he said, all it takes for evil to, to foster to get fostered is for good men to do nothing and we're seeing yeah, too much yeah. nothing right yeah i mean a, a bunch of famous people have said it and they keep they keep saying it because they're right yeah and so but here we are we're at this spot where we need to do something well and i think for students who have just been kicked out of of university this is something where my heart really is um, that these students who are really the free thinkers, the independent thinkers, they've been punished 
for doing exactly what university students should do. David, and, these people now, are amazing. Have you, you know, when you think about the particular people, and I've met so many of them now, they're just amazing people. When you think about what they've had to give up, and not just that, but the ridicule and the pressure, and the, and and they've been willing to to uh, to, to withstand all of it. And it's so interesting about them, and so many of them have said this to me that they felt at the time as though they were giving up something major, and then when they got outside of academia, and I feel this as well, but when they got outside, it just felt like in some sense the weight of the world was off their shoulders because they realized how confining and suffocating it was um, but these are amazing people and I, uh, I I won't say any of their names but I know number from from Laurier and from Waterloo and from U of T and and from Western who have, have approached me and um, they've been through an awful lot and uh, having principles and willing to my goodness, willing to withstand the kind of abuse you can suffer in the social media era is, is an amazing testament to who they are. And they are exactly the people who should be our intellectual leaders in society, not the people who should be cast aside, you know? And, and you know, let's just contrast that with the professors that they have at the university. These professors constantly tell them, uh, I'm pro-social justice, I'm pro-equity, I'm pro-inclusion. Well, where are they? Where are they? Hundreds Somewhere not sitting in their furniture, not realizing the hypocrisy. I don't know where they are. <laughs> Good question. I just think that, that every student, if ever they go back into the classroom, they should look those professors in the eye and say, you're a liar. You're a hypocrite. I needed you and you left me. Yeah. And I can't. The whole, notion, the whole notion that our universities support a culture of diversity, inclusion, equity is a lie. And no better lesson, no better moral, no matter, better example has been this COVID mandate where, no, where you stood up, I stood up, but the thousands of professors who could have said something did nothing. And who I would imagine are having some doubts these days and continue to say nothing. They're no better than those who hold the narrative as close to their chest as possible. And David, I can't, I can't thank you enough. And as I said earlier, I hope we, we have a second parter to this and keep talking about these issues because when I ask you, what can we do? We need to do things like this. We need to open dialogue and have discussions and let these ideas breathe and free float in society. Not so we convince other people of them per se, but so that we show other people that it's possible for them to exist and debate openly and our lives will be better for it. And I just can't thank you enough. It, it's been a pleasure, Julie. I really, I, I'm glad we're getting to know each other better. Thanks very much.